Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today here at First Christian Church. Welcome to everybody here in the West Auditorium, to those in the East. We're very glad you're with us as well. And to those participating in worship in Lovington, we're very glad you're all, we are together, all going to read some scripture together today. If you look at Exodus chapter 3, take a Bible, please, and we'll take a look at that together. Maybe you've got a smartphone, maybe you want to grab one in the pew rack in front of you, or uh, in the East Auditorium, there's some people moving around with the Bible right now. While you're looking for Exodus 3, uh, let me introduce myself. First of all, my name is Wayne, and I'm um, very glad you're with us. I'm part of the pastoral team. And um, a few weeks ago, Les and I were walking down a sidewalk, and uh, this news reporter came up to us and said, I need to ask you guys some things, and would you mind being on camera? And we we uh, passed on the opportunity at that moment. But if somebody was uh, with a camera, if a news team was to come up to you and put a microphone in your face with, and ask you to respond to this question, how would you respond if they were to ask, so um, what in your opinion, what's the biggest problem faced by our world? What would you say? I mean, there are all kinds of answers, right? You could say, well, we have problems with racism. We have slavery in places around the world. We have war. We have hunger. We have climate control. I read just yesterday that Miami-Dade County, but due to climate control, the water from the sea is seeping up underneath the city. They're very, on a very porous land there. And within the next 50 years or so, a quarter of the, popul a quarter of the land is going to disappear in Miami. I'm not going there to buy property. You could probably buy it fairly cheaply, I would imagine. But yeah, so what's the biggest problem that is faced by our world? When these problems come up and we identify them, uh, legitimately, we go to the United Nations or to politicians and say, can you fix this, please? Sometimes to varying degrees of success, varying degrees of failure. And here's my observation. When we ask people or institutions to take on matters like that, um, invariably, uh, we empower them with responsibilities that are larger than what one human can manage. And we make these humans, if you will, small gods, little g, in charge of this or that. And we say, hey, you fix slavery, or you fix the economy, you fix poverty, and there's a problem in that because they are very small gods, unable to really manage all of the issues that are before them and us. They are... Could we use this sort of language, puny, puny gods, too small for the tasks given them. The circumstances, uh, just the way it works, they flip from one side to the other to the other, back and forth, back and forth, kind of whiplashed around. And uh, speaking of small gods being whiplashed around, we're going to show you a clip today that is not very church-like. I'll just tell you, if you like Marvel comics, you're going to go, this is grand. We showed this in church. Um, I'll just set it up, listen to who's God and how small that God made, and buckle your seat, buckle your pew belts in, please. Okay, here we go. Take a look at this. Enough! You are all of you beneath me. 
I am a god, you dull creature. And I will not be bullied by that. Puny god. Did you catch what he said? Puny god, puny god. I can't believe we showed that in church, but that's a different matter. What, 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 what that clip reminds me of is that we need a bigger God. We, we don't want one person claiming to be a God who can fix that or the other, this or the other with, with, with really that matters are beyond his or her control. Because if we ask that particular human, you fix that, who are we kidding? We'll all be disappointed. Now, that person may do some great things, but in the long run, they're not going to be able to manage it all the way to the end. And we end up then with puny gods. Why? Because our world has a life lived hard. And not only does our world need a big God to take care of that sort of stuff, our own individual lives, we need a big God too. Why? Because your life, my life, in the past, presently, or perhaps in the future, your life is a life lived hard. We're going to talk about that today. And again, I'd like to welcome you to, uh, well, I'd like to welcome you to a new four-week sermon series called Tell Me More. More than a dozen churches across the community uh, have kind of, we're agreed we're all going to deal with the same topic today. We got the pastors together and said, well, how would you approach this? How would you approach that? And so in all these pulpits today, we are answering this question. Since we acknowledge the world and individuals need big answers to big questions, how do we describe the big God who could take care of those questions? Let, let me, uh, if I will, step into it this way. Perhaps you know that in the ancient story, or the, the story of ancient Israel, there was a period when Israel was, was lived in slavery for some 400 years. Uh, here's how it went down. that uh, They migrated to Egypt, and for 400 years after... They eventually ended up, well, they were, the, they were, if you will, they were responsible for much of ancient Egypt's labor force. 400 years. Now, we, we're inclined to say, well, that's 400 years ago. That's a long time ago. That wasn't very long, really. I mean, the nation, our nation is 239 years old. So it's, I mean, but think about it. How much has taken place? How many lives have been impacted in our own nation's history? And multiply that by almost a factor of two. That's how long the nation of Egypt, pardon me, the nation of Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And what was taking place during that 400 years is as that 400 years was coming to a close, the Egyptians were getting a little bit concerned about their slaves because the slaves were multiplying very quickly and they thought there might come a day when the slaves would try and perform some sort of coup and overrun the nation. And so consequently, the Egyptians did this in a moment of cruelty. We read this, that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor, in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And then it got even worse. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Horrific. Life was very hard, cruel, unjust, horrid. 
If you're like me, sometimes I wonder, why is it that people can treat each other so poorly and then even go beyond that, sometimes with absolute brutality? God in heaven was watching what was taking place and chose to say, okay, I'm going to find a fellow who's going to bring some freedom to these people of Israel, and that fellow was Moses. He was given the responsibility to show the people that, hey, God is big enough to take care of their situations. In other words, God's going to show up, and Moses, you're going to be used by me to get these people out of slavery. Look with me how it took place, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he's out in the wilderness all by himself, just him and a few sheep, all right? And what happens next? The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So he's thinking, what's that over there? That's the strangest thing I've ever seen. It's like this bush is on fire, but nothing's happening. So... I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush doesn't burn up? And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, this is a little bit unusual. Don't you think? I mean, <laughs> it's a little bit. I mean, this is a one-up event. Never before, never again. I, I'd be a little bit stunned. I'd be a little bit freaked out. And so as Moses, he says, well, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And with that, Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. He knows that, hey man, if I actually see God as a human, I might just melt. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. They're going to leave Egypt. They're no longer going to be slaves, and they're going to go to a different place, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home. Now catch catch this, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, Jebusites, and maybe even the place of mosquito bites. I don't know, but none. (laughs) At least that's what mine says. Doesn't yours say that? No, I guess not. I'm just making sure you're listening. And the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, I I have to say, if this was me, and God shows up in a burning bush and says that I'm going to go do this big task, I'm going, you've picked the wrong guy. Do you really think I'm up for this, God? I mean, why me? Moses has the same response. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You say, I'm doing this. We say we're going to go worship, but I still, I still don't believe. I, this is a crazy idea, God. Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites. He's looking for ways to say, Mm-mm, not me. Suppose I go to them and they say, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Ah, ah, what would, what? Now, we know later on in in Israelite history, they actually got to the place where they realized that God's name was Yahweh, and there's a long history behind that, but they eventually came to the place where they said that our God's name is Yahweh, but they weren't there yet. 
Who shall I tell him sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am who has sent me. And when, I've, when I was a kid, I remember reading that as a little boy and going, you know, you're in Sunday school and you read and I go, what's your name? I am. It's a strange name. Who are you? I am. You are, you are what? You know, I am what? Uh, no, it's just I am. What's going on there? Long story short, what, what the Bible is telling us here and what God is saying in that answer is he's saying, I am. In other words, there is no one but me. I am the only God. And this was very, very new in that culture, in that time, because these Israelites were living in Egypt. Egypt had many gods. Theologians would use this word, that they were polytheistic. They, theism being God, poly meaning many, many gods. Some of the gods were small, some were larger. I mean, even, even the Pharaoh himself was considered a god. And Egypt, and for that matter, all the nations of that time were polytheistic. All the faiths were polytheistic, polytheistic where they would have small gods and big gods, some similar, some not similar. I mean, it just went on and on. And Moses meets this one God, this one big God who says, there are no other gods. And he lives to tell the tale, barely. The reality is, in later years, when he went to visit God on the mountain, just as God said he would, you know, you're thinking, ten, he goes up the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments and other instructions. You've seen that in movies, perhaps. Um, Scripture says that he would hide in a hole in a cave, like hide in this little space inside a rock when he spoke to God because he knew that to actually see God, the one true God, would probably mean he would melt. He would mean death. And what's going on then? If that's all in this, what is the Bible saying? What are we learning here? Well, the Bible is making a theological statement as, that as Moses is meeting God on the mountain and saying this, that the God of the Bible is a big God and the only God. Jewish faith, Christian faith states there is one God and one God only. So God and Moses meet, and then, if you know the story, this big God rescues. Uh, well, actually, can I give you some better words? It's not only that God rescues the Israelites, God actually delivers and redeems the nation of, of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Because after a series of events, what the Egyptians were so afraid of the Israelites, they actually begged them to leave, and they gave up their slaves for fear that this one big God that they were learning about would do damage to the nation. And why am I telling you this? Because our world, different situation than Israel and Egypt, but I tell you, a mess nonetheless, just like those people were discovering, our world and our times are in such disarray that we need a big God. Our world needs a burning bush God, not some puny God that can be thrown back and forth, flip-flop back and forth by some green big Hulk thing. So we're going, Wayne, that's not what he's called. I know, but he looks to me like some green big Hulk thing throwing the God back and forth. That big God that we need is the God of Scripture. And here's what's fascinating about Christians and our understanding of Scripture and this big God. Christians believe, and the Scriptures tell us this, that that big God wants to know you. We believe that, first of all. The Bible's quite clear about that. And then we also believe that not only does God want to know you, but there is something within each human being that wants to know God. So there's this two-way desire to know each other. Something that says, 
God is coming and rescuing the people of Israel and saying, I want to know who they are and have them be in relationship with me. And then there's also something that is um, a core desire that is a common desire across all humanity that's been there for all time, and that is, how could I know God? Look at what a famous wise man, wisest man in his era some 3,000 years ago said about this desire within us. Solomon said this, 3,000 years old. God has made everything beautiful in its time. We all agree with that. Everything's beautiful. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Solomon's saying there's something within each human that says, how do I get, there's, I, I, I'm glad for who I am. I'm glad I can touch this table and feel it. I'm glad I can reach out and speak with people, but there's something deep within me beyond this. He says there's this desire within us, and yet, on the other hand, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We want to know, and yet we, well, why can't we know it all? Because if we knew it all, then we'd be as big as God, and that means that God becomes puny again, because God can only be shaped to the magnitude that our brain can take in things. But there's something way beyond that, and there's a desire to know what that is, and there's something deep within me that agrees with this scripture. There's got to be a God, I would say. There's something about God and eternity that rings true and deep within me. And so to maybe help me explain this, I would invite you to take out uh, your, your, your uh, smartphone if you have one with you. It's an interesting phenomenon that seems to be taking place in my world, at least, with smartphones. I can't remember how to do some things anymore because the phone can do them for me. Is this you? Like, can you remember your parents' phone number? I can't remember my parents. I know it's an area code 604. After that, I'm kind of lost. Because why? Although we talk to them every day, I just press speed dial and I get to them. And so I'm beginning to say, I, I used to know hundreds of phone numbers just kind of by rote. I couldn't tell you who they are anymore because I just go this way. Or, or what about the fact that you have a calculator on your phone? Do you have a calculator? Mine, mine looks like this. Is that what yours looks like? Similar to that? Okay. And... People rely on calculators now, it seems to me, more than our brains. Is that right? Have you noticed that? Like if you're at a fast food restaurant and you go in there and the bill, say, is um, $5.43 and you give $6 change, do you know that you get 67 cents back? So you go, oh yeah, we get, and so you go, no, I haven't, no that's not right. And so you go, I haven't got a clue. We, we, we rely on this, right? Okay, if you give 543 and it's $6 bill, and you give them $6, it's uh, 58 cents back? You all are going, you're such an idiot, Wayne. Well, that may be the case, but nonetheless. <laughs> Maybe we can't do math in our heads anymore like we used to because of the calculators. I remember when I was a kid, I mean, probably junior, senior in high school, and they said, you have to have one of these big Texas Instruments calculators, and it cost about $700 to buy. Do you remember that? And, and all it could do was add and subtract. Well, mind you, this costs about six or $700 too, but that's, <laughs> you get the idea. But, but we don't even use those things anymore, right? Because, I mean, this, this calculator, it's got all the stuff on it. Well, you know about it, but nonetheless. But here's what's interesting to me about this stuff. You know, calculators aren't new. They didn't just appear in the 60s and 70s. Uh, some years ago, prior to that, a young 16-year-old boy, his father was a tax collector who had to keep track of all kinds of accounts on behalf of the government. 
This young 16-year-old boy would watch his father poring over the books, and he said, I can make something to fix that. And he made a calculator. Actually made 50 of them in about 10 years. Do you know when calculators were invented? 1642, more than 400 years ago now. Yep, you heard it correctly. Blaise Pascal, a French mathematician, invented calculators in the middle of the 17th century. Four of his machines still survive today and actually work. They can add and subtract and make all kinds of calculation, calculations. What's fascinating about this man is that for the early portions of his life, he was not a Christ follower, but he had a dramatic encounter with Christ at age 31. And in a dramatic moment, he converted. He had lots of impact upon the scientific world and the philosophical and Christian world during his life. Years after his death, people were going, somebody was going through his belongings and came across his coat, kind of his overcoat. And looking at the, at the coat, they found that a slip of paper had, he'd actually sewn into the lining of his coat a slip of paper describing who he was before Christ and this burning desire to know the things of God and what it was like after Christ. This is what it reads. It reads this way. The year of grace, 1644. Monday, 23 November, Feast of St. Clement. From about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, two hours. His conversion experience was two hours long. Fire. The burning bush, remember that? Fire. The God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life. He's sewn this into his coat. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. I mean, this sounds like Moses, does I mean, he's meeting the I am, this burning bush. Jesus Christ, I left him, I fled. Renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. Pascal describes the intensity of our desire to know who we are, where we come from, how we got to where we are, and whether or not we, could we know this God? Could, could this fiery bush become part of our lives? Does that describe you? If so, you're not alone. People, the scriptures tell us, of all generations have said, there's something that I want to know about eternity, something I want to know beyond this world. You know, here, here amongst us today, three different auditoriums, we have three different, I mean, we have many different um, backgrounds and nationalities and ways in which people end up in church today. There are family stories that are known, some that are unknown. I have this crazy family story, you know. My grandfather's from New Zealand. My grandmother was born to Methodist missionaries before the beginning of the 20th century in New Guinea, headhunters. I mean, we have tremendous stories of what it was like to live there. They meet in Australia. They get married. My, my parents are born... Um, and then at 11 years of age, we moved to Canada. Now we're in Canada for teenage years. Go to college in the U.S., go to, e go to Eastern and Western Europe to live for a while and end up in Decatur. Go figure, right? Go figure. So you're, my, that's kind of a mongrel story. I get that, but maybe your story isn't quite like that. Maybe your family is, man, we've, been, we've farmed this. We've farmed these acreage. Our family has farmed this since 1852, whatever. We all come from these different spaces, we kind of have an interest. Where does, how does all that work? We want to know, what's the story of our family? 
This business of um, having an interest of our, in our roots has led to a whole new online industry. It's called genealogical research. In the past, it involved a lot of traveling. You used to have to go to courthouses and ask for court records. Occasionally, we still have people show up here and say, can we see the church records from about 1888 or something like that? And say, my great-grandfather was born and we think he was baptized here. And so we've got those sorts of records. And, but now, you don't have to do all that. You have to do all that traveling because at a whim's notice, you can launch a full-blown genealogical research from the comfort of your living room on the internet. 67 countries have got together and said, we will share all the birth records and all the stories that we have of all the people that we have uh, with each other. And so now these 67 countries have given, you can have access to 16 billion, 16 billion different records of people's lives right from your living room. Apparently, this is big business. I read that one-third of the adults, one study has said that one-third of adults who are online are using the internet to, to uh, if you will, investigate their family story. 67% of them say that knowing their family history has made them feel wiser as a person. 72% has helped, said that, well, I, I, I have a better relationship and closer to older relatives. And 52% half have said they've discovered ancestors they didn't know about. Listen to what one researcher says in this quest to know of her roots. I've never had, a, her name is Emily Stewart. I never had a hobby that brought me joy until now. And it's more than a hobby to me. I originally started because I wanted to know if my ancestors were really French like my family boasts. And something woke up inside me, and I can't explain it. The more I learn, the more I feel that my ancestors, at the very least, deserve to be honored and remembered for their hardships in getting to America. They were all farmers, and I'm proud of that. They worked very hard just for us. And I want to hand that legacy down to my descendants. I want to know my roots People want to know the beginning of their story and where do they come from and how does that relate to where I'm going. But can I tell you, friends, regardless of your family's origin or, or your roots, Scripture describes who you really are and long before your family came into existence. The Scriptures tell us this, that you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your... So wherever I go, you're on either side of me. You lay your hand on me. I mean, you're, you're guiding me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, I, I can't even take it all in. I it's too lofty for me to attain. That's who you are. That's... Who, how well you, your story is really long. It goes on to say that before you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Before I was conceived, you had my story down pat. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your words are wonderful and I know that full well. My frame, in other words, my bones, the way in which my body puts together, wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed body. 
all the days ordained for me. Everything that's going to happen to me was written in your book before one of them came to me. If you want to know how important you are, and if you want to know the roots and where you come from, that's where you come from. What does it tell us? It tells us that you are known by God. You were planned by God. Your days, your history is not an error. Oh, others may have missed, messed up with your history and made it more difficult. You may yourself have made some decisions that make your history kind of... <laughs> But the big God of Scripture can manage that. In other words, this God is a big God intimately interested in the outcome of your life, of the life of each human. He's not some watchmaker who puts the stars in place, if you will, and wound them all up and now is watching from some deep, dark hole, you know, seven times removed in the back end of the cosmos. Christians believe God is orchestrating and conducting the life of the cosmos. Engaged in each person's destiny, and the smallest details of your life are in play. Do you know how, here's how finely tuned all, this, all the ways in which God is engaged in your life. It is so finely tuned that Jesus himself said, God is aware of how many hairs you have on your head. That's really good news. For some of you, that's an easier task for God than others, but that's a different matter. It calls for a response. So maybe, could I say it even, I would like to use the word, it demands a response. Maybe that's too tough a word for a preacher to say, but I would say this. It certainly calls for a response. This big God, intimately engaged in you, may I suggest that you move from knowing about God to knowing God. See, Christianity is not about a religion, it's about a relationship. You've heard people say that before. It's not information about God, it is access to God. Think of Moses again. He steps up to the bush and God reveals himself in a fire. That revelation brought freedom from slavery for an entire nation. That revelation there was really cool, but think about the ultimate revelation of God beyond a fiery tree that not only brought freedom for an, a, a nation, but instead brought freedom for an entire race called human. Because the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus Christ. He's revealed in the, Christ, in the scriptural stories, detailing these lives. He's revealed in the cross. God in a human body dying for the sins of humanity. God dying for your sins. And God continues to reveal the divine to us today through Jesus Christ. So this is my response then to all of that. Moses stepped up to the bush and said, what's that? I'd suggest you step up to the way in which God is revealed most. Step up to the cross. Step up to forgiveness. Step up to the grand adventure, friends. This adventure that says this big, caring God who's in charge of everything, including how many hairs you have on your head. That God wants to be engaged with you today. Amen.